Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. Really excited today to have Seth Davis uh, for PCA one-on-one interview. Seth is a college basketball writer for Sports Illustrated and SI.com. He writes the popular column Hoop Thoops, uh, sorry, Hoop Thoughts, and is a college basketball analyst for CBS. He graduated from Duke in political science, uh, which probably was good preparation for college basketball. Um, he's the author of When March Went Mad and uh, most recently, uh, an incredible biography of John Wooden called Wooden, A Coach's Life, and uh, just really delighted that Seth is a member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board, and uh, so great to have you with us today, Seth. Great to be with you, Jim. I appreciate uh, the kind words and all the good work that you do. Well, thank you. Um, So we have a concept of a triple impact competitor, someone who makes himself better, makes her teammates better, makes the game better. Um, And the book I wrote about that called Elevating Your Game, um, Shane Battier wrote the forward for it, and I think Shane is a perfect example of of a triple impact competitor. Who comes to your mind as an athlete in college basketball who makes himself better, teammates better, and the game better? Anybody come up? Well, you know, the, the great thing about uh, what I do, Jim, is I get to encounter lots of young people, and um, you know, they, they, you know, surprisingly, they tend to see the game in, in, in a very mature manner, and they, they seem to see the big picture. I mean, you know, one guy who comes to mind for me, as you were talking from last college basketball season, is uh, Aaron Kraft. He's a uh, was a senior point <laughs> guard at Ohio State since graduated. Uh, a four-point-something student who uh, will someday uh, probably become a surgeon, uh, incredibly intelligent, plays very, very hard, um, probably not going to be a professional. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, he certainly embodies everything that you like in, in, in a student athlete. But, you know, Jim, I have to say, you know, despite the, the, the reputation of, of college sports and what some people try to write about college sports or say about it and denigrate it and all that, um, most of the kids that I encounter are really trying to take advantage of the full breadth of, of the college experience, and that means being a good teammate. That means being a good student. That means being a good citizen. Uh, I think they uh, are appreciative of the, the opportunity they have, the incredible privilege they have to be able to play uh, college athletics on a scholarship and have all that paid for and get to play ball and compete and be with your friends and, and, and all the stuff that comes with it. So I, I feel very lucky to be in the space that I'm in, as it were. Yeah, I think a lot of people would love to have your job. What, um, what if anything, you've seen a lot of coaches um, up close and personal. What, if anything, do great coaches have in common? Well, the number one thing, Jim, I think, is their ability to communicate, um, you know, to, to, to motivate um, and communicate what it is they're trying to do to get their teams to play a certain way, uh, to get them to sacrifice, to get them to buy in. Um, you know, and and not, not every uh, player is the same. Not every human being is the same. You know, what motivates you know one player might not work for another player. So you've got to really take the time to excuse me, get to know your guys, and you know, find out what buttons to push, and 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 establish that relationship. So the ability to express yourself, to communicate, to be honest, um, to listen, which is part of communicating. I I would say that's the number one trait that for me would would come to mind. You know, it strikes me that um, 
so many coaches under communicate and I, I want to talk about your wooden biography a little later, but um there was a, a point in the in the biography where Willie Knowles was one of his big star and he benched him without telling him why he did it. And later uh John Wooden felt uh you know, felt he had made a mistake there. But it just seems like so many coaches like they they don't um they assume that the players know what they're thinking. Yeah, and they shouldn't. And, if, and you know, that was one of the things that John Wooden, uh, you know, had to struggle with because he coached for so long. You know, I mean, this is a guy who grew up, uh, you know, in Depression-era central Indiana. He grew up on a farm that had no electricity and running water. He had uh, only brothers, no sisters. He had two sisters. Both of them passed away very young. Um, very male-dominated uh, household, male-dominated culture, male-dominated society. There wasn't a lot of explaining going on. Uh, that's not how he grew up. So, you know, as he moved through coaching, um, he had to adjust to the idea that, you know, it wasn't enough just to tell your players what to do. You did have to explain why. You did have to take their feelings into, into account. And I'm not sure he ever really crossed that bridge as a coach. I think it wasn't until after he was through coaching and he got into his 70s, his 80s, his 90s, he had lost his wife, which softened him, um, that he was able to relate on that level. But you know, I, I, I think, Jim, the primary mistake that I see coaches make is um, – you know, it's one thing to get on your guys, curse at them, you know, if that's the way that you prefer to communicate. Uh, you know, we're not naive here. Uh, you know, this is not church, you know. I mean, that's that's the, the, the lingo of the locker room, the culture of the locker room, the culture of sports. But, you know, if you're going to get on your guys, you better take the time to bring them into your office or, you know, sit with them somewhere and put your arm around them and talk to them and, and connect with them on, on a deeply personal level. So they they do know that you have their – genuine uh, best interest at heart. So if you get on them and have to say unpleasant things to them or say it in an unpleasant manner, they're going to be able to receive that better. So I think uh, you know the, the further that we go along, the more needy young people are in all walks of life um, for that kind of communication with the adult influences. And if a coach is not going to take the time to you know establish that relationship and make sure his guys know that he loves them they're not going to play hard for him and they're not going to be uh, very receptive to you know some of the rougher uh, moments that are inherent i think in the job of coaching yeah those those hard conversations uh, as you say are a lot um, more effective if the, if the player knows that you really care about them and um, I, I want to ask you about two different people, um, very different in some ways, Shaka Smart and Brad St Stevens. You know, Shaka is uh, very demonstrative and emotional, and, and Brad is, like, uh, uber calm. Barely um, has a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, talk a little bit about why each of them is so successful, even though their style is quite different. I don't think – I'd be very surprised if either of them swears at their players or, uh, you know, is very negative. But what, what do you know about them? Well, I know both of them quite well and, and obviously have covered them a lot and spoke to them a lot. Um, and, and they're, you know, they're a lot more similar than meets the eye. I mean, I think, you, you know, you choose a great pair – uh, of examples there to demonstrate, you know, the old saying, a lot of different ways to skin a cat. Uh, you know, Bobby Knight talked one way, John Wooden talked another way. Both their teams um, were very well coached, so there are a lot of different ways to do it. I think the most important thing, the thing that those two guys have in common, is that they are true to themselves. Um, they are really doing the same thing, but in a way that they are comfortable with. I mean, Shaka, 
you know, has always felt like, you know, one of his primary advantages uh, competitively is the fact that he's young, is the fact that he's energetic, is the fact that he's enthusiastic and edgy, and, you know, he always looks like he's in a defensive stance ready to hop out there. I mean, that's he knows that's one of his assets, and therefore uh, he, he chooses to use it. I, I like to, in fact, for, for many months I was using as my um, early Twitter uh uh, message to my followers on Twitter, wake up the space. And what happened was I was covering a tournament down in the Bahamas um, for television, and I watched eight consecutive shoot-arounds, and I watched eight different teams come into this gym and get ready to practice. When VCU came into practice, they were chanting, they were screaming, uh, they were using their vocal energy to get up for this practice, and Shaka walked in, and he kind of smiled. He says, yeah, that's right, we got to wake up the space. you know. So that's his... M.O. Uh, Brad Stevens is a much more uh, reserved, thoughtful, intellectual, analytical guy. He, he was at the very forefront uh, in the college game, uh, and I'm sure he's taken this to the NBA in terms of analytics and uh, different ways to use numbers and different ways to you know, figure out numerically. In fact, he, he actually employed someone on his staff specifically for that purpose. Uh, my, my favorite uh, Brad Stevens moment came uh, several years ago. He, he was playing, Butler was playing at home against Gonzaga, and it was a big time. It was ESPN had their game day crew there at Hinkle Fieldhouse, historic Hinkle Fieldhouse, and it was this much anticipated matchup because these were the two, you know, biggest mid major Cinderella's and the, the, the history of Hinkle, and it came down to this incredible. Uh, ending where uh, Butler stole an inbounds pass and a player named Roosevelt Jones hit a floater at the buzzer to win the game. And Brad Stevens, you know, everybody was going nuts and the court got rushed. Not only did he not react, he literally did not unfold his arms. He had his arms folded as he's watching this shot go in. And when it went in, he just kind of put his head down and he walked towards Mark Few. Uh, to shake his hand. So even in that moment, Brad Stevens' composure was, was unruffled, and, and I really admire that, that approach. I mean, I admire both approaches, but it's a great example that you can do the exact same thing in a totally different way, and each of them is very effective in its own right, as long as you are being true to yourself and honest to yourself and not trying to be something that you're not or someone that you're not. You know, I, I, I remember that game very well, and I believe um, – that Brad Stevens actually did not see the ball go in, that he had turned towards Mark Few. And I remember asking him afterwards about it, and he said by that time the hay was in the barn. It's yeah. like whether it goes yeah. in or not, we did everything right. You think he might allow himself like a small fist pump at that moment, you know. I mean, he definitely <laughs> – trust, trust me, Jim, he saw the ball go in. There's no doubt in his mind about what happened, but he just – you know, that's just how he coaches. He kind of rem- tries to remove the, the emotion from the moment. Um, but don't don't think for a second that he's not competitive. I mean, he wants to slice up, slice you up. And um, that's another trait that all great coaches have, of course, is their ultra-competitiveness. Um, who, who are some of the, the other coaches, college coaches, who do the best job of building and maintaining team culture? Well, you know, they're all the guys that you see, you know, playing deep into March. I mean, obviously, at my alma mater, you have, you know, Mike Krzyzewski, who is a masterful program builder. You know, he's not a classic X's and O's guy. Um, You know, I think X's and O's is by far the most overrated aspect of coaching. I mean, John Wooden didn't have any plays. Uh, He he was not an X's and O's guy by any nature. He seemed to, you know, take the play when 
10 national championships. Um, you know, Mike Krzyzewski is the ultimate communicator. He's the ultimate relationship builder, and he's the ultimate um, uh, master psychologist figuring out what makes his guys think, coaching them from the inside out. Um, Tom Izzo is probably the best example of what I was re- referring to before, Jim, about a guy who can really get on his guys in a very uh, demonstrative and profane way, uh, and even a belittling way, if you will, but really takes the time. I mean, he's such a good person. Um, you will not, literally not find a bad word uttered about Tom Izzo by any uh, other coaches or anybody in basketball, and that's extremely rare. So that gives him a lot of latitude. Uh, to get after his guys, so um, and, and he's very good at, at recruiting guys who can play for him, developing them to his style, uh, and then you know getting them to to, to play his way. Uh, not everybody can play that way, and not everybody can play for Tom Izzo, but the ones who do, if it, if they buy in, um, you know, are are part of a very much of of a winning tradition. Uh, you know, Bill Self is maybe kind of in between. He's a little bit more like a Brad Stevens, kind of a cool, uh, you know, slick hillbilly type. Um, really does a, a very good job at Kansas of not letting um, criticism and message boards and Twitter and social media and all of the all, all of the things that people can get wrapped up in and concerned about. He, he does a pretty he does a pretty good job of maintaining an even keel. I think I think Bill Self's going to be in the NBA someday, and I think he'd be very good at it because he's not going to get too high or too low based on a win or a loss. Whereas I think Tom Izzo is a guy who I think the losing. Um, and the grind of a long season would uh, would get to him. And then I guess last, you know, I would mention Mark Few uh, as a guy who, at the mid-major level, um, you know, to me Gonzaga is is a great example of, of of a university and community-wide culture that breeds winning. It's not just about having a great head coach; it's about having great facilities, great fan support, um, great community support, alumni support, the president, the chancellor, the athletic director, everybody on board. You know, things like chartered flights and private jets for recruiting. I mean, if you're going to try to convince a kid who wants to go to Air, who's being recruited by Arizona and he's in the West Coast and you want him to come to Gonzaga, you have to you have to have resources and you have to have assets. And um, that university and, and the city of Spokane has done a terrific job empowering a very good man and a very good coach, you know, to build, you know, really one of the great athletic programs in all of America, not just in basketball. Um, you, you you talked about um, you know Tom Izzo about um, you know the wins and losses sometimes can eat you up and that was one of the things that really struck me you know uh, going to your uh, your biography of John Wooden uh, he was such an icon that uh, a lot of people didn't really know many of the details and um, I was really struck by how um, how early in his career and maybe even later in his career how the comp the com- the pressure to to win was really um, really ate away at him. Yeah, it's kind of the sad irony of of John Wooden's life. You know that those twelve years when he was winning the ten national championships were in many ways the most unhappy years of his life because of what you described. I mean, you know, again, you know, this is a guy who comes out of uh, Central Indiana in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. I mean, he won a he won a high school state championship. Uh, in the state of Indiana before there was even ever such a thing as an NCAA tournament. Um, and, you know, he didn't get into basketball for money. He didn't get into coaching for money. And, you know, it became a very big uh, and valuable business, largely because of what he was able to do at UCLA. But, 
Um, he was also, you know, very thin-skinned and uh, very insecure. That's probably the the, the biggest thing that, um, you know, the most significant revelation that maybe I didn't quite expect going into the project, Jim, is the fact that, that like a lot of great achievers, John Wooden was motivated by insecurity. And therefore, if people sniped at him, um, and, and it, was like he, it was like he couldn't win. You know, at first, um, you know, he was at UCLA for 14 years before he even ever won an NCAA tournament game. And so you wondered, you know, he, the criticism was, well, here's a guy who can't win the big one. And then he started winning. Then it wasn't by enough. Then he was winning by so much he was ruining basketball and ruining the sport. Um, so it was no matter what he did, um, you know, he might go, you know, 20, 25 and 2 over the course of a season, but he would get a lot of questions about what happened in those two games. Um, and it ate away at him. And I think I think some of it was legitimate. Some of it was um, just him being thin-skinned and insecure uh, and coming out of the depression with the understanding that whatever treasures you might accumulate could all be gone in an instant. And, um, you know, it drove him as a coach. It also drove him in, in his retirement, you know, kind of burnishing his own legend and legacy and saying things that weren't quite true. Um, and so it was all of a, of a piece of a very – you know, extraordinary man, but, you know, an actual human being with actual human flaws. And I think, you know, a lot of times we get into this myth-making business, and, you know, I'm in the industry that makes the myths, and, um, you know, we get away from reality. And in the book, I really wanted to, you know, paint a picture of, of John Wood, not just what he did, but who he was and the life that he lived. And, and the reality is, during that time when he was winning championships, he was often uh, not happy, it had health issues, had a heart attack, um, and that was the reality of being John Wooden during that championship run. Yeah, one of the surprises, uh, I, I think the, the biography is amazing, and I think it's going to be a perennial. I think it's one people are going to be reading 20, 30, 50 years from now. One of the biggest surprises to me was how good a basketball player he was. I knew he was an All-American, but uh, he was really, really good. Yeah, it's you know it's funny, Jim. When, when I would tell people that I was working on a book about John Wooden, um, people would say, "Oh, you know, this, everything's been written about him, and how can you write something new? Everybody knows everything about him." And I'd just say, "All right, let me ask you a question: Where did John Wooden go to college?" <laughs> and a lot of people can't. A lot of people can't even answer that question. It's Purdue, um, and much less you know understand that you know really during the first 50 years of basketball, John Wooden was arguably one of the top 10 players. Uh, he was a great, great college player and would have been a great professional uh, if there were such a thing as professional basketball. He he came of age uh, before the NBA was, was created. He played some professional ball on the weekends um, while he was uh, teaching at school. But um, he was a great, great player, uh, first at Martinsville High School. I mentioned he won a state championship there, and then he went to Purdue. They didn't, they didn't have um, All-Americans per se at that point, uh, and they didn't have a national championship. His uh, team, his junior year, was, was uh, retroactively assigned um, and dubbed the, the national champs for, for 1932, but there was no you know, championship at the time. But he was, uh, he was a tough, tough man. Uh, a tough competitor. He was extremely quick, um, but he wasn't very big. And his whole modus operandi as a player was, you know, I can't control how tall I am. Uh, and he was certainly blessed with great quickness. But one of the things that he could control is what type of physical condition that he was in. So it was his strategy as a player that he was going to be in the best shape 
of anybody. And he was whoever was defending him, he was going to run the whole game and run and run and run and run. And then when it came to the last few minutes of the game, when games are decided, uh, his opponent was going to be tired and John Wooden was not going to be tired. And that's what made him uh, extremely effective as a player. And it's what made his teams very effective when he became a coach because he came out to the West Coast where everybody played a very slow Henry Iba walk-it-up style. Remember, there was no shot clock back then. You could hold the ball and you'd have uh, very low scores. And John Wooden came in there, uh, which what was what was called fire wagon basketball, which he learned from his college coach at Purdue getting up and down. And his simple approach uh, with his players was, I'm going to teach you how to play. I'm going to teach you the fundamentals of the game. I'm going to run you ragged. So we're going to be in the best shape, and we're going to get the game to be an up-and-down game. We're going to get it at our tempo. And um, in the last few minutes, the other team's going to be tired, and we're not going to be. So so all of those lessons that he learned as a player so effectively, uh, certainly he, you know, he brought with him to his coaching career. Yeah, one of the things I, I think might be surprising for people who read the book, I, I actually knew about Pete Newell, but uh, Pete, who coached Cal to uh, – uh, NIT championship, uh, runner-up, and then an NCAA championship, and he also coached the Olympic uh, gold medal team, something nobody else has ever done, all three of those. Uh, Pete was quite a coach and actually got the better of John Wooden uh, while he was at Cal. Well, folks at Cal will be quick to remind you of that, (laughs) and uh, certainly people who played for Pete Newell will be quick to remind you that. Um, The last eight times they played, Cal beat UCLA. Now, many of those games were quite close, um, but that was certainly a time where, um, you know, Wooden was not, uh, his talent was not uh, at a a very high level, but, you know, Pete Newell was a great X's and O's guy, and he was a great game strategist, and he was a great defensive coach. John Wooden was never considered a great defensive coach. He was considered a great offensive coach. So Newell was able to do, you know, similar to what I described with Wooden about creating a tempo that fits your style, uh, Newell uh, was very good at uh, doing that, but in the opposite vein, making it a slow game, holding the ball, playing a deliberate offense, um, guarding you in a way that would make it hard to get into your offense. And, you know, he took a team that um, did not um, have, you know, any great uh, players by historical standards, and he led them to the 1959 NCAA championship. In fact, in, one, in fact, when he won the championship, uh, Bill Bradley was named the Final Four's most outstanding player in the third-place game. Uh, that's how uh, not star-studded uh, Pete Newell's Cal teams were. But, uh, you know, the thing about Pete Newell was he killed himself uh, coaching. He, uh, the stress of it, the pressure, uh, the intensity of the games. He was a smoker. He was a drinker. Uh, and he would go long stretches without eating, without eating. It was just coffee and cigarettes to get him through. And uh, he had to retire at the age of 44. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, Newell fans and Newell acolytes will say, well, you know, Newell was a better coach, and if he had stayed in the game, um, you know, he would he would have proven it and wouldn't would have never had that run. But you know, I think part of being a great coach is being able to do the job without killing yourself. And the fact that John yeah. Wooden was able to, you know, to maintain an even keel and stay in it for as long as he did, I think I think is part of what, what made him a great coach. So you know, they're both great coaches and had different careers. But at the end of the day, you know, John Wooden's got 10 NCAA championships and Pete Newell had one. So historically, it's you know even though the you know coaches might say that Newell was a better coach, I mean you know the whole point at the end of the day is to win, and nobody won more than John Wood, and that's the bottom line. Yeah, that, that staying power is really, uh, especially in such a stressful profession. Um, you know, I like the way you divide the book into four quarters, four seasons of his life, 
and um, you know most many of us who are alive, many of us who are adults now uh, really remember John Wooden's fourth season uh, you know the uh, after he retired and uh, can you talk about why that was so crucial in the reverence we all have for John Wooden now? Well, you know, he actually, in a lot of ways, Jim, became more famous after he retired. And it was a happier time for him because, you know, he, I mean, he had, he, his last championship team was his least talented team. He was very much on top of his game when he stepped away. He stepped away because he couldn't take all of the ancillary pressures of the job anymore. Uh, he, he, he could not deal with the idea that he was the, def- the world's definition of success was going to be dictated by numbers on a scoreboard. So once you remove that scoreboard and remove those numbers and remove that environment, he could be what he wanted to be all along, which was just a simple man living a simple life who was a great teacher and who could pass on the values that he was raised uh, by his dad and just pass those on to the world without being judged all the time. And, of course, it was a, a very sad experience for him to lose his wife, Nell, who was a lifetime smoker and uh, died in 1984, I want to say. Um, and many people, including his family, thought he wouldn't live very long without her, and he ended up living another you know, 30 years. Uh, and in those 30 years, um, you know, it was his boys, his players, who came back to him and you know many of them had ambivalence and maybe even outright disdain for him based on their experiences with him as a player but now you know when they became uh teachers or professionals and certainly fathers and grandfathers they start what he was trying to teach them started to make a lot more sense and he was able to repair a lot of those relationships and you know it really got to a point and and I feel um consider myself extremely fortunate to have been able to spend so much time with him in his in his last years um, it was just amazing to be around a 95, 96, 97 year old guy who was 100% mentally sharp, and not just you know with it mentally, but able to you know re- remember names and dates and games and scores and recite you know, long poems by rote without skipping a beat. I mean, just an incredible mind, and, and it really added to his aura because. You know, first, you know, he beat, you know, the Bobby Knights and the Digger Phelps of the world, but later it was like he was beating science. You know, he was beating death. You know, it just didn't make sense that this man who was so old could could remain so impressive. And it was like you, you just hung on every word. And he was such a sweet man. You know, people would not describe him as sweet when he was younger. But, um, you know, as he got older, you know, that sort of feminine side of his personality came out more and he was able to relate to his players on an emotional uh, level and, you know, acknowledge the mistakes that he made. Um, he, he was an oracle, uh, and he was available. You know, he had a listed phone number. You could go to breakfast with him. You could interview him, and uh, he was very available. I thought some of the most um, emotionally powerful parts of the book were in that fourth quarter of his life and, and the the importance he came to play in the lives of his players. It was just really, uh, really moving, actually. Well, it was a special time in his life, and, you know, I really thought, um, I mean, what an incredible blessing it was for him and his players that he did live so long and that he was uh, so gracious with his time and available, uh, that he was so mentally sharp. You know, there are, like I said, there are a lot of players who really did not like playing for him, especially if they were among those uh, who didn't get a lot of playing time. You know, funny how that works. <laughs> the more uh, the more right. the player plays, the more the more they like their coach personally. Um, and that was very, you know, I, you know, I think they left their experience playing for him, you know, with those 
bad feelings. And I'm not sure he was even really aware of it. I mean, I think he sensed it on some level. I think he understood that someday, you know, they would understand what it was he was trying to teach them. But, you know, by the same token, um, it was just not how he related to his guys. So, um, yeah, it's very beautiful that he was able to uh, live as long as he did and, you know, have those experiences with his players that and have those relationships that he was not able to have uh, when he when he was coaching them, and I, I think that's really one of the one of the great blessings for him and for them uh, that they were able to not only have closure, but in in many cases have a real uh, close relationship. And they kept him alive, Jim. I mean, that to me is what's really special is the you know the the exchange. The, you know, I mean, how many times do we see these sad cases of of older men and women that get to that point in their lives? And they're just kind of wasting away, you know. They don't have visitors or things to do, or they're not sharp, or their mind starts to go. And and for John Wooden, they, they, you know, those conversations. I mean, he loved it. I mean, you know, frankly, there are a couple of times when I was interviewing him, I'm kind of looking at my watch, thinking, how the hell am I going to get out of here? I mean, he loved to talk. He was <laughs> kind of lonely. He was kind of lonely, and he loved to talk. And it kept him sharp. It kept him alive. It kept him happy. Kept him young. And um, you know, gosh, I mean. All, all of us should only should only have not only to be able to live that long, but to have that you know that you know high quality of life um, you know for all those years. Uh, he, was a, he was a very lucky man in that regard, for sure. Yeah, Seth, this is great. I got two two other quick questions, and we'll wrap sure. it up. One is, sure. how do you see uh, you know with all the changes in in the NCAA, how do you see college basketball evolving over the next few years? Um, any, uh, you know, the idea of potentially play, paying players or at least certainly giving them a larger stipend. How 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 will uh, college basketball change, do you think? Well, w- one change, Jim, that I do not anticipate and I think we all uh, are hoping we don't see is that somehow the NCAA basketball tournament is going to be changed where you're only going to be uh, including, you know, teams from these Power Five conferences. I, I think that would diminish the appeal of the NCAA tournament, which would undercut its its value. And so if we're going to say that this is uh, about money, which, uh, you know, shock of all shockers, it is about money, um, then uh, I, I don't think that would be a good business decision. So I'm hoping that's not going to happen. I don't anticipate that that's going to happen. Um, you know, I, I think that people have really misunderstood a lot of the real debate uh, about what's happening in, in, in college athletics. I mean, most of it has nothing to do with quote-unquote pay-for-play. You know, this is not open season, make as much money as you can, uh, you know, don't make any rules abridging a, a young man or woman's ability to make money. That's really not what this is about. It's about taking better care uh, of these athletes and, frankly, conforming with the law. And so, uh, you know, this autonomy proposal um, where you have the Power Five conferences, you know, having the ability uh, to make new rules, um, you know, this is something that was unfortunately necessary because the smaller schools with less resources have been blocking a lot of these changes that uh, a lot of people have been uh, calling for. And so they put themselves in that position where, you know, these five conferences said, look, you either let us make – these rules, or we're going to go form our own organization because we're the ones getting sued. <laughs> Y'all aren't getting sued. We're getting sued. We, you don't have money. We have money. People want our money. So it's not about pay for play. It's about uh, stipends. It's about cost of attendance. It's about health insurance. It's about loosening the reins a little bit with things like 
allowing schools to pay uh, airfare home over Christmas, allowing schools to pay uh, for the families of these athletes to attend games or go to the NCAA tournament, uh, food, and um, and maybe there are some you know money-making opportunities to a certain extent um, that, uh, that that can be allowed to at least explore you know moving closer to an Olympic model. My, my main concern in this whole debate, Jim is that we don't lose a lot of these so-called non-revenue sports. I mean, I, I think we should never yep. lose sight of the fact that because of the current system, hundreds of thousands every year, hundreds of thousands of young men and women are given the opportunity to attend some of the finest universities in the world on scholarship. Uh, they get their housing paid for, their books paid for, their food paid for. Um, they're learning their craft they're playing ball, they're having a great time, they're going to class, they're graduating, and then through sports, and this is you know, a good way to wrap it up because this is what your organization is all about, so I'm so proud to be a part of it. You know, why, why are these – people say these universities are only in it for the money. Well, if that's true, why, why do these schools have 30 sports when only two of them have any chance of turning a profit? And by the way, 90% of those two – uh, programs nationwide actually lose money and don't turn a profit. Why do they do this? Because they believe that uh, there are, are educational uh, values to playing sports. You learn discipline, you learn sacrifice, you learn teamwork, uh, you learn um, you know battling through adversity, you learn about handling success, you learn time management. Um, I, my, all my kids play sports. And I love them playing sports. I love they're getting exercise. It's good for their physical health, their emotional health, uh, their hormonal health. Uh, they're, they're, being, they're coming into contact with positive role models. They're making great friendships. There's a huge value, I think, um, to sports and youth sports and college sports. So I think these changes can be put into place where you're taking better care of the athletes without shutting off uh, – opportunities for people to enjoy those benefits and as long as i can be an advocate in any very small and unimportant way um, that's what i'm going to advocate for fantastic last question you wrote uh an, an essay for us five or more years ago about coaching and your son's uh youth sports experience um i want i want to take duke out of the picture because i know you're a duke alum if you were going to send one of your kids off to play college basketball now who would you want to coach him and why <laughs> now you're gonna get me in trouble. That's like <laughs> that's like asking me who my favorite, which of my sons do I love okay. the most? You know, um, one of you know, one of the coaches you'd like to have coach uh, your son, and why? You know, I, 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 honestly, Jim, um, there's too many to mention. I, I couldn't pick just one. I mean, to me, it would be it's more about who who would my son connect with. Um, you know, I, I think as a parent, in a lot of ways, you have to remove yourself from this decision-making process and let and trust your your kids to make the right decisions. So a lot of it would be about, you know, what does he want to study? What kind of life does he want to be a coach? Does he want to try to be a professional yep. player? Does he want to, you know, be an engineer? Does he want to be a, a, a politician or a sportscaster? And what does the university have to offer? I really believe, Jim, and I'm not. I don't think I'm a naive person. And I've been doing this for a long time. I really believe that the vast, vast, vast majority of these men and women who are in coaching professionally uh, are in it for the right reasons. And they're in it because somewhere along the way they had a coach who touched them very deeply. And they want to be that coach 
um, for other kids. Um, and I think that's what drives them. And so there's, you know, there's, there's, there's too many for me to mention to say I would love to have my, my kids uh, playing for them. Unfortunately, they have my DNA. So the chances of them actually getting an athletic <laughs> scholarship in college are, are relatively small. But we can always hope. They might, they might be playing at the D3 level, which is not a bad thing either. Not at all. That'd be wonderful. I'd sign up for that right now, believe me, if that's what they want. Yeah. Seth, thank you so much, and I really want to thank you for your support of the Positive Coaching Alliance movement. Uh, you know, our, our goal is to make high school and youth sports what we call a development zone, where the goal is to develop better athletes and, and better people. And uh, it's, it's just great to have someone like you uh, involved and supporting. And thank you for the time. This has been a fantastic uh, interview. I really appreciate it. Believe me, Jim, it's my honor, and I appreciate all the work that you do. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.